This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thanks be to God. Lord, we uh, thank you for your word, and we ask that you'd uh, bless our time now as we consider it. Speak to our hearts, in the name of Jesus, amen. We're going to begin with a little video. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple, okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. <laughs> Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm going to stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an animal. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is 
is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? (laughs) (laughs) It's probably on the edge of what's acceptable in church, but... uh... So the Trinity, Um, I think we all know it's an incredibly important doctrine and a distinctive belief of of the Christian faith, but I think for most of us, we're kind of hoping that no one asks us about it. (laughs) Is that true? Very hard to explain. As we're going through Philippians in our pursuit of joy in this series, we come to an incredibly important passage, uh, Philippians 2, 5, 11, uh, which Joseph uh, read. And... Um, in its immediate context, it most likely was you know, an ancient hymn you know, that, was, that Paul's actually using here essentially to correct the leaders of the Philippian church who were in conflict with one another. And eventually he says, you know, if, if Jesus, who was, you know, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but you know, made himself a man, even humbled himself to the point of death on the cross, can't you guys humble yourselves towards one another? But the passage has really enormous theological implications. And we don't want to pass over that. It's an incredibly important passage in terms of what we believe. And so we're going to take a little bit of time to talk about some of these theological implications. And I know the idea of theology seems really exciting to everybody here. But it's essentially what it is, I know some people smell and go, yeah, other people are like, that is boring. But if you understand, what, what is theology at its heart? It's kind of asking the question, what does the whole Bible teach about something? That's really the point of it. Oftentimes when you look at a, a particular verse, you know, you might go, well, that's an interesting verse on prayer, but really what, is the, what you really want to know is what is the whole Bible teaching about prayer or on giving? What is the whole Bible teaching about that? That's really what the heart of theology is. And you can imagine, too, that's a pretty incredible, incredibly important thing to understand because a lot of people have gone crazy with one little verse saying, here's what this teaches and gotten themselves in all kinds of trouble without gathering those thoughts. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to take a little bit of look a look at some of the implications of this passage. And what's so critical about this particular passage and the theology it speaks to is to the person of Jesus and the nature of God. You know, we talked a little bit last week as it talks about, you know, Jesus, you know, who being very nature God, did not consider equality with God, something being grasped, made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. And last week we talked about this idea of, uh, you know, fancy word Christology, who is Jesus, how he is God and man and his ultimate work on the cross. Um, But today we want to expand that a little bit now, not just talking about um, Jesus' nature, but the nature of God. For it goes on in that passage and said, God exalted him being Jesus to the highest place. But you're like, hold on, wait, wait, I thought he was God. How is God exalting God? That doesn't make sense. It's It's confusing. You know, that he is Lord uh, to the glory of God the Father, which gets into this idea of the Trinity. And I know most of us hear the word Trinity. Trinity is a word which we're all familiar with. But how much of us really understand it? Very complex, very difficult. If you want to understand what the Trinity is at its heart, because one problem is, by the way, it's not in the Bible. There is no word the Trinity. Even the expression, the way it expresses it, you know, one God and three persons, not in the Bible. What the Trinity essentially is, is a way to organize the data. That makes sense. Imagine all the data in the scripture about the nature of God. The Trinity is a way of organizing that data into a way that you can kind of understand it. You know, it's kind of like a hypothesis, I suppose. 
But I mean, the idea that you have all these different things, what's a way to organize that and think about it? And that's really what it is. And so what we're going to look at today is what is some of this data in the Bible that organize, you know, what is the data it has about the nature of God? And how does the Trinity organize that data? And lastly, why does that even matter to us? And by the way, that's like 10 sermons. And we're going to try to do it in one. So it's going to be a flyover. But I, I hope that by getting this high view of it, you'll understand why it's so important and what it's accomplishing and, and why it's so distinctive to our faith. Um, so let's, let's do our little flyover. Working on the data here, as I mentioned here, you see this data that talks about Jesus both being God and yet being separate from God in a sense, right? Some of our data, Jesus Christ is Lord, the name of God in the Old Testament, but it's to the glory of God the Father. What's going on here? Even this phrase right here, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, um, that's actually an Old Testament prophecy, right? And what, he, what do you do with this Old Testament prophecy? In Isaiah 45, the Lord says, I am God, there is no other. So there's no other God but God. Before me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear. And then it's saying, wait, but now at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess or swear. So that is that he is being placed right in the middle of this Old Testament prophecy about, every, you know, so, to, so basically to bow your knee to Jesus is to bow your knee to God. To confess his name is to confess the name of the Lord. You're going, okay, now, and we're collecting data. So if you want to think about this person of Jesus, there's really four great, what they would call chair passages to the person of Jesus in the New Testament. This Philippians 2 is one of them. And I just want to, again, fly over the other three real quickly. You probably know some of them. You know, if you think about yourself, many times we know John 1, very important passage. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, right? Paul's pulling it, or John's pulling us back to Genesis 1. All the way at the start, there's God, but there's the Word. And then it says, and that Word became flesh, dwelt among us, person of Jesus. We've seen his glory, right? The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, yeah, I'm not gonna, we're going to fly over this thing. Another flyover there in Hebrews. It says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things. You know, the sun sustains all things by his powerful word, right? And that's normally attributed to God, of course. After he had provided purifications for sin, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And another passage, and the fourth kind of these chair passages is in Colossians. And it says, he, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, which is not a statement of being born, but a statement of authority. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. Important phrase. In him all things hold together, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So as you begin to put all these things together, if you want to separate all things 
in two categories, creator and creation, right? You're either one or the other, right? You're either creator or you're creation. Me, I'm creation, right? I was made. Jesus, creator. Does that make sense? So he's on that side. Creator, creation, all these verses, one thing, he's on that side. And now, so when he walks into the world in the Gospels, you see that authority, right? You see him walking there and he has all, you know, he teaches, he doesn't teach like the rabbis, he teaches with the authority of God, like he's giving the Ten Commandments. You know, he can move nature. The spirits are subject to him. Again, again, throughout the ways, perhaps most significantly, is he actually receives worship. Uh, Look when Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 as an angel would. No, he receives it. And he says, blessed are you that you realize that. And when they climbed into the boat, the winds died down. Then, Then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So they worship him as God. You know, so that, and you, so you, you see these chair passages being supported by all the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels. Yet, we have this idea of this plurality, right? In John, it says, just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. So there's this idea that they're separate individuals, not one. It's not like different forms, right? The Father didn't become the Son, then become this. They're actually separate. They relate to one another. Yet, I and the Father are one. They're separate, yet one. Again, we're just collecting data, and there's a ton more data. We're just giving you a little, little flyover. So what about the Holy Spirit then? Right, called the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, many actual names. Holy Spirit's just one of the names given to it. It's a description of the Spirit. And starting in Philippians, because that's where we are, look what it says about the Spirit of God in Philippians. We already saw what it said about, you know, glory of God the Father, Jesus the being in equality with God. Here's what it says about the Spirit of God. Uh, Paul says, I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. In Philippians 2.1, it says, any encouragement, if there's any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with his Spirit, that's communion. You know, that's the word communion. If, if, if any connection with his spirit. And then Philippians 3.3 says, we who worship by the spirit of God who glory in Christ Jesus. So what is the spirit's role here? Here you see him, the help given to him was actually given by the spirit. The communion he has with God, he may have knowledge that he's united with Christ, but the actual communion is with the spirit. And the worship is actually in the spirit of God being done to the glory of God and to the glory of the Father. You're thinking, huh, what is going on? In the book of Acts, it says, Peter said, Ananias, remember Ananias, I came, I don't want to go into Ananias, you don't have to trust me on this one. Um, Ananias, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? And then he goes on to tell him, you have not lied to men, but to God. Holy Spirit is God. You're lying to him. Other times, remember, we grieve the Holy Spirit other, other ways than that. And this is not just New Testament, by the way. This is Old Testament also. Or in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? This is Hebrew parallelism, right? 
the presence of God, the Spirit of God. And you're thinking, okay, so maybe the, is the Spirit of God really a distinct person that we need to think about? Or is it just sort of this like, you know, because Spirit just means wind or breath. You know, is it just the wind of God or something? Well, then you see these other passages where they delineate all three of these. Like in Matthew 28, it says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Boom, boom, boom. 1 Peter 1 says, you know, describing the people of, um, he's writing to, you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Whew. I'm not confused. You confused? But I mean, they, they, they separate these things, right? And again, this is also Old Testament. This is one of the craziest things. It's not just New Testament. Here's an Old Testament one, Psalm and Isaiah 48. Now look who's talking here. It says, listen to me, Jacob, Israel, whom I've called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. Who's talking? The Lord, obviously, right? God of creation. But then he says, my own hand laid the foundations of the earth. And now the sovereign Lord has sent me with his spirit. You're like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Who is me? Wait, I thought it was the Lord talking. You know, but no, it's that I am the first, I am the last. The Lord now has sent me with his spirit. There it all is. Very much reflective of what we see in the New Testament, in Isaiah. You can think all the way back at the start of Genesis, right? What's one of the first ways? It's a strange little thing. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Why the plural? It's pretty weird, isn't it? And it may be that that plural is a majestic plural. You know, we said and we do that, which may be valid, but it also certainly is strange in the midst of it and certainly allows for this revelation. So as we begin to collect this data, what do we have? We're looking at all these different things. We say, well, we must worship only God. Bible's clear about that, right? Very key on who you worship, right? That's Ten Commandment kind of stuff. That is the whole point of the scripture, the revelation of this one true God whom all must worship. But we must worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And there's only one God. Help. <laughs> what is going on? That is weird. What is, I mean, how, that, that is what the data all says. And so who comes to the rescue? The Trinity. You understand? This is a way of trying to take that data and put it in a way we can grasp it and understand it. There is one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Simple way of wording it, but that's essentially what the Bible teaches about it. You know, and it's, it's obviously more complex than this. God the Father, you know, it's more than this, revealed to be creator, Lord, Father, and judge. God the Son, who had lived on earth among human beings, worshipped as Lord. Uh, God the Holy Spirit, who filled them with new life and power. That's where we have communion and connection, leading, guiding. That's who we interact with, the Spirit of God. Um, the Athanasian Creed that was quoted, um, I think this is, it, it's good and it's a little funny, um, So as we sum this up, it says, 
We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence, for there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, the Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Ghost uncreated, the Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, the Holy Ghost unlimited, the Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Ghost eternal, yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. And in this Trinity, none is before or after another, none is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. That was easy. And that's only partial, by the way, of the Athanasian Creed. But we start... If you want to, that is the heart of the Trinity, right? It's not as these different um, classic sort of uh, heresies, you want to call it. It's not three parts of God. It's not three forms of God. There's actually three distinct persons and one God. All co-equal, co-majestic, co, you know. It's, um, so that is the Trinity in a, in a flyover. So what? Does anyone have any... Uh, any applications for this to your life in a normal, normal world? Um, I, I tend to think when we quoted um, you know, uh, Spurgeon a couple weeks ago, in my own view on this, um, I think actually the study of the Godhead is an end in itself, to tell you the truth. If, if, you wanna, if this is the person you worship, the one you're bowing before, the one you're going to see face-to-face, and to know who he is and understand the scriptures and how he's revealed himself is critical and end in itself. I think in the greatness and the vastness you know, there is a comfort for every, you know, wound. There is a, a humbling. There is an encouragement in the majesty of it all. Um, I think to know truth is critical. You know, I think, air, you know, uh, we talked about the analogy of, in some ways, theologies. Uh, looking at one verse is like following a trail. Theology is like look, knowing where the trail goes and seeing the whole map of the park. You know, if you want to go... You can walk on a trail, it'll be all fine, but it's really good to know sometimes where that trail goes, how long that trail is, when you come to Forks, where you're going to go, and where it fits into the hole. But if you say, well, all that stuff is too detached. Let me, let me give you one more. The thing, actually, I've been meditating on a lot this last week, thinking about the Trinity in terms of application. I think it actually gives you an incredible strength to believe your faith, both for what it does to your mind and what it does to your heart. Because um, I think it's ironic, because I think oftentimes a trinity is almost something we can feel embarrassed about because of its complexity. And I actually think its complexity is the very thing which should strengthen your faith. What do I mean by that? So to your mind, Mortimer Adler was probably the most prominent American philosopher of uh, last century. He uh, was a Jewish atheist, but he had a lot of interest in God and faith and things like that. And he was being interviewed by NPR, and he said that he thought, because of this very doctrine, that Christianity was the only faith that had the opportunity to be true. He didn't say it was true. He said the only one that had the opportunity to be true. And the reason he said the opportunity to be true is because it conceived of a God, or revealed a God that was beyond our conception. Think about it, right? If, a cre- if, if we are created by a being, the creation cannot conceive by definition of the creator. You're always less. And he said, any, any faith of which he's studied all these different ones that conceive of God in a way that you can conceive of him, you know was created by man. It's just a philosophy. He thought Christianity alone and the Bible alone 
revealed this God who was beyond our conception, therefore gave it the opportunity to be true. Now you might say, well, that's interesting, but gee, I can write a science fiction novel and conceive of God beyond all conception. What's the big deal about that, you know? I can imagine something that's just crazy. Does that mean it possibly can be true? But now you start to go into the Bible and realize this is what makes the Bible so unusual. It's not one guy coming up with some crazy science fiction idea, right? It's 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years in three different languages over, you know, over uh, in all these different walks of life and areas. And yet they all come together and reveal this totality of it. And all in different ways. Everything from Genesis 1 and the plural to this strange thing in Isaiah to what we see in the New Testament to the theophanies and the physical appearances of God. Each one kind of hinting at it and speaking to the same way. And that's when you stand back and go, whoa. And essentially say what Mortimer Adler says is, who can make this stuff up? The very fact that all these different people over all that time have this consistent revelation of it you stand and you go in amazement. Uh, And you realize that, wow, what we actually believe in the nature of the Trinity is the very thing that gives it not only the chance to be true, but the very fact that it exists is evidence of its truth. I think. But I think it just doesn't only do things for your mind. I think it does something to your heart because it helps us explain who we are as a people. Right? You're made in the image of God. What do you understand about the nature of the Trinity that's very unusual in itself? And that God in God's nature is what? Relational. God's not isolated, right? Very idea of love, right? Love, people say God is love. Love only makes sense if there's something to love, right? There has to be something to love. And and God couldn't have been love prior to creation because there's nothing to love unless love exists within his very being. That he relates to one another, Do you understand about yourself, right? You're made in the image of God. Do you find the need to relate to other people? I'd say it's the deepest hunger that we have is that we want to connect with other people. We want to relate to other people. You know, you may think, oh, just get get your money, get your job, get your fame, and everybody with all the money and all the power, if they don't have someone to share it with, if they don't have someone they can relate to, someone they connect to, they are miserable. They're not satisfied with that. When people are isolated, right, they're depressed. You know, many people believe that's a heart of substance abuse. You know, that, that if someone is connected to other people relationally, they don't find them with substance abuse problems. You know, whether you believe that or not, there's certainly a lot of correlation in regards to it. We need to be connected. Someone who can be the most poorest and hardest of circumstances, if they are connected to other people around them, they can endure it. And the person with the so-called best circumstances our, our world here has to offer, but they are isolated, they are miserable. It is our very nature. We want to be known, we want to be connected to other people. And that's the nature of God. That's why we are that way, because God is that way. But you notice something else that's interesting, is that you never really connect to anybody, do you? Not fully in the way you want to. Think of the deepest connection you have with a friend or a spouse don't you always want to be a little bit more connected? Don't you wish that I, they knew me a little bit better? That I'm not, I'm not quite understood? I'm not quite comforted. I'm comforted, but I'm not comforted entirely the way I want to be. Every single relationship seems to fall short. 
That's exactly what the Bible says should happen. Right? Go back into Genesis 2, right? Remember the, the man's made and he could find no relationship, no one to connect to, the woman uniquely who comes from him, right? From his very nature, right? Out of his being, not a separate connection. And he connects to this one, first thing, right? The two become one flesh. But they're not alone because they're with God. God and the two are together. And what happens in the start of Genesis 3? They break from their relationship with God. And what's one of the first fruit or consequences of their break from God? The husband and wife clash. And they are broken apart. They begin to blame, put whenever, and they say this is going to be until, basically, until God makes things right, there will be forever enmity. And that's what happens in this world. We're never completely together until ultimately we're reconciled with God. And what is, it that, what is God essentially doing? When he created beings, he essentially invited them into his relationship. Right? That we're invited into the relationship that is the Godhead that we're pulled into, when we're reconciled to God, he pulls us into his very relationship. And then we are also then related to one another. And we can finally connect with one another as we've always longed to do. Every connection you have now, every taste you have in this broken world of that connection, of that being understood, of that comfort, of that strength is a foretaste of the ultimate comfort, strength, encouragement, and connection that God promises to us in the Trinity. So that's why I think it's important. You know, I think it speaks uniquely to the truth of the gospel, the truth of our experience, and to the truth of what we see in the world in our minds. So, so you've looked at Trinity. This has really just been an, an ankle-deep wade into these waters. But I hope you've gotten an overall picture why this is not something you should be embarrassed about or some strange Christian belief that something's at the heart of the nature of God and heart of the nature of how we are. And I say, let yourself get lost in its vastness. Climb into it and understand all that God has for you, the amazement of the great truth that then can give you the strength to walk through every day, to hunger to satisfy that connection with other people and our connection with God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we want to praise you and thank you, Lord. We want to give you praise, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for all that you are. Lord, help us to look into that vastness and receive the comfort and strength you want us to. To have the assurance, Lord, of your truth and the truth of your word. To go forth as your emissaries in this world. We bless you and thank you, Father. In the name of Jesus, amen.